Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Basimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Council, Sex, Trauma, and the Forgotten Partners. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Pisimio. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are in the very hot and stuffy <laughs> counseling house to talk about things. And we turned off our AC just for you, our listeners. Just for so you, our you listeners. you can hear our podcast without a roaring background. That is how much we care about you. So, <laughs> so anyway, what is going on in our world? So... So I, I got to recently, actually just this last week, I got to go back to Colorado Springs yes. to IATEP CSAT Mod 2 mm-hmm. and translated that is the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals uh, second of four modules for the Certified Sex Addiction Therapist credential. You've had a very academic week. I've had a very academic week and learned a whole lot of things. Um I did not do all my assigned readings. Sorry. Ooh. However, uh, oddly enough, I have discovered um, I'm doing the reading, listening to the audiobook after the fact, which actually is kind of cool because I'm now reading about what we talked about. And so it sort of crystallizes in a different uh-huh. way. Kind of reverse crystallization. Uh, reverse crystallization. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't know that it, that would work in all settings, but it's what I'm doing this time. Yeah, if it works for you. It's not terrible. <laughs> so... Awesome. Well, and I'm reading a book on obsessive compulsive disorder, Brain Lock. I'm also reading, haven't started, but I'm about to read a book on autism. Ooh, so, mm-hmm. That sounds like fun. It, yeah, I think it is going to be fun. I think it's um, mnemonic devices for autistic uh, therapy. So, mm, pneumatic devices? Mnemonic. Mnemonic devices. Yeah. Okay. Mnemonic techniques. So I will tell you what that means probably next week. All right. <laughs> I will look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. At least yeah. I'll tell you well and articulate, hopefully. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so we were going to talk about the the training that I did because it's really interesting and I, well, I wanted to talk about it, so we're going to do that. But I, so, so when I took module one back in April, um, that one was all about the, the addicted person and a lot about diagnosis and how do you start out recovery? What are the initial tasks of recovery? And, uh, a lot of things around that, what is sex addiction and, uh, things like that, uh, Module two was all about the partners because uh, typically when there is an addiction present, there is, well, 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 there's a partner addiction, any sort of addiction happens in a system. So family systems theory is often used in addressing addictions. It becomes especially prominent when you're talking about any sort of sex or porn addiction uh, because of the highly relational nature of what sex is, uh, the relationships involved become especially meaningful, especially important. And a lot of the the wounds leading up to addiction and a lot of the, the damage um, that can happen as a result of a sex addiction, they, they're often very relational in nature. So, okay. mm-hmm. um, so we talked a lot about the partners. Yeah. I and mean, there's probably a lot to flesh out there talking about the partners. Um, can you break that down into, I mean, because you, you had like a whole week of training on just education on sex addiction, sex therapy for related to the partners. What kind of different topics exist within that? We spent the first 
two and a half days talking about the disclosure process. Okay. A major step in the recovery process is a is a full disclosure process. Mm. Um, the the addicted person person recovery makes a full disclosure to their partner. Here's everything that I've done, everything that I'm up to, um, and it and there's there's a lot that goes into that. How to do it safely? There's a lot of ways to do it badly, so we try to avoid those. But and we spent some time doing role plays and everything. Okay. There was some question. Well. Why disclose at all, isn't it? But if there's, if they, they can keep the addict can keep a secret, why not keep a secret? Mm-hmm. And um, what, why, why disclose? Because it's going to cause a lot of pain and a lot of stress and a lot of chaos. And there, and there, and the the risk is always, well, what if uh, if I disclose all my secrets to my partner? What if they? What if he or she leaves me? Which is always a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so they had said some of the benefits of the disclosure. You know, just benefits for the couple. Um, the if there's no disclosure, then there's a risk of enabling the infidelity or the acting out. It, if because it's still secret, it can go on. Mm-hmm. The behavior can. My model right now is, uh, you know, you support the the addicted person, but you also um, there's also a whole other person there who's having right. their whole other process. I know. I you know the one thing that I keep like drifting towards. You know, the marriage and family therapist they really got something on us. You know, like you know if you've been doing counseling long enough and you study a topic hard enough, you're just like. Well, at some point, you know, it kind of involves the family. I think so. You, get, you kind of get you kind of get pulled into that, and and there there really is something there. You know, I think I think some people start with the individual and work towards the family, and I think other people will start with the family, and then they they might work towards individual therapies. Um, at least that's been my impression working around several marriage and family therapists. But yeah, it's interesting how that there's there's more um, congruence in the long term than I originally expected. <laughs> I think so. And I had to really think and reevaluate because I know uh, when I was in school, I thought, oh, maybe family work might be cool because I used to think I wanted to do youth work. Mm-hmm. And then when it came time for my marriage and family class, uh, we did family role plays in school and I mm-hmm. hated it. Right. It was the most stressful thing. Uh, I'll do groups all day long. Well, maybe not all day, but I love groups. I can't. I, couldn't stand the family role plays because they're and they, they were just role plays but they were super super stressful and so i swore to then i would never do family therapy but now i'm having to really rethink that because like you're saying like the more you get to know how a person works how their problems mm-hmm. work how family systems work how attachment theory works how just people in you know shared neural networking works um nobody exists in isolation mm-hmm. everybody exists in the context right and if you're not changing that person's context are you really helping them right right yeah this is a very good question <laughs> right so <clears throat> now i'm all a flutter and thinking what am i doing with my life so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think right before we started you also mentioned uh you know getting sold on other techniques and tools that is right that is right which um so we talked about so the first half of the training was talking about disclosure and supporting the partner in that way. Uh, the second half was all about trauma. And there we talked about um, uh, trauma, uh, PTSD, complex PTSD, uh, as relates to attachment, as relates to relationship, as relates to boundaries. Um, you know, one of the highly quotable moments of the the training was saying, you know, describing sex addiction. What is sex addiction? Sex addiction is a disease of profound boundary failure. And um, so we talked a lot about regaining boundaries, claiming back boundaries as a really healthy thing, as a really necessary thing, and as a really foundational thing for self-confidence. People with boundaries tend to be more confident. 
because they are able to see themselves as people. They're able to establish lives that are kind of predictable, kind of stable. And from a predictable, stable, stable, safe life space, there's room for growth, not just growth, but, but building things, but thriving and mm-hmm. uh, what can come out of a confident sense of self. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I came back with tons of notes and I wrote out a whole bunch of notes before this talk, which I don't normally do because I like just talking. Yeah. One of the biggest things that struck me about this particular training was seeing seeing the partner. And I think the the stereotype is, you know, you've got your male sex addict and your your wounded wife at home, which definitely happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is that there are women sex addicts as well that are leaving wounded men at home. And and on top of that, there's same-sex couples, there's, you know, poly relationships, there, there's a whole bunch of different clusters, and there's there's kids involved too. And so there's just uh, a whole lot of people that are that are affected by, by something like this. Mm-hmm. And I think my experience watching the story play out in my own life and watching it play out in the lives of some very good friends is that the, the addict gets the, the, the attention, sometimes negative attention and stigma, but they get the attention, they mm-hmm. get to go off to inpatient, they get the support, they get you know, the studies done on them and everything, uh, the partner gets forgotten yeah, or worse blamed or worse, their experience is minimized mm-hmm. and altogether they, they don't really have support. If it's, if it's, if it's a woman partner, um, she's either blamed for not having enough sex with her, with her partner or by, for being cold or frigid or, or her experience is minimized or, you know, she's told, well, you should have been more open. This is your fault. Uh, or, yeah, or those could be the things she says to herself. Maybe they are. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about the trauma, a lot of it had to do with a really destructive internalized messages of yeah. like, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthwhile. I'm not pretty enough. And when you experience betrayal on a very physical level, such as this, those internalized destructive messages just explode with even more destruction. So, so it made me feel a lot of things. Um, some some sadness, some rage, some just you know social justice indignation. Be like, mm. people, pay attention to the partners. They're 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 hurting. They're important. And I feel like partners, they I mean, they definitely face a conundrum of either people saying, "Oh, just get over it, just forgive them, uh, this isn't a big deal," or on the other end of it, "Oh, that's so uncool, just leave him, just leave him," as if it's this really easy thing, and 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 it's not. Meanwhile, for 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 male partners, there's this other set of challenges where I think in our uh, toxic narratives of what mm-hmm. men are supposed to be, masculinity is supposed to be. There's this idea of like we need to have like super sexual prowess and like never be cheated on. Heck, we should be the ones cheating. Um, and so it it wounds us in a different way, and mm-hmm. uh, it attacks our self concept in a different way when we're when we're men being cheated on, and it's no less painful. Um, but also not at all recognized. And mm-hmm. so the challenge facing uh, a victim of betrayal trauma is not really having any support or anyone to run to. Family doesn't usually understand. Uh, religious leaders generally don't understand or don't know how to talk about this really well. If they do, that's really special. Give us their mm-hmm. name and number. We'll send everybody <laughs> to them. Um, but, uh, but they end up feeling just really alone which mm-hmm. tends to reinforce the isolation, the vulnerability to abuse. And again, it, it reinforces all of those internalized messages of, well, you're not good enough. You're not good yeah. enough. You're not good enough. So I had a lot of feelings. 
And so, and now I'm looking at my own practice and I mean, I love working with the, the, the addict person, um, mm-hmm. but now I'm like, I want to work with partners too yeah. and be able to support them. Absolutely. Um, do they ever talk about doing like joint sessions where you're working with partners and the client? They did. Mm-hmm. So, so we talked about a disclosure session as being okay. so a specific disclosure. Sessions? Yeah. So that one will be the, the addict, yeah. the partner, are yeah, there any other sessions where you might combine or meet up with both of them? Uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. part of part of how this model works in an ideal scenario mm-hmm. when there's enough other uh, trained professionals, you mm-hmm. know, the the person in recovery, they have their own therapist, the partner has their own therapist, and they also have a couple of therapists to, to work with or at least a family group or something like that. Um, I mean, we would recognize that in order to do couples therapy really well, often both individuals need to do a lot of individual work mm-hmm. leading up to that. So, so that, and that became the challenge for me. So instead of my setting, I do individual work. I'm not trained in couples therapy. I don't have that, that degree kind of don't really have that interest still. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to network with somebody. Um, but, but that was a challenge because it was recognized. Yeah. Um, the couple, the couple needs to grow through this together. The, the partner is never to blame for what the addict does. The, the addict, they, they're responsible for their own choices. Um, you know, the partner, they, they are able to take responsibility for their own selves and their own care, their own mm-hmm. boundaries. And that becomes a lot of what the work is like with, with a partner is, you know, showing, hey, yeah, this is what trauma is. Yes, you actually have had trauma. And here's what healing is. And yes, you actually can do it. And here's what a good boundary is. And here's how you set it. And by the way, here's this, you know, here's this group of other survivors who you can bond with and partner with as you Mm go. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I can't imagine, um, you know, trying to work in addictions without having that kind of specialized training. Um, I know so little about, you know, addictions field, uh, sex addiction field, specifically having worked in residential addictions work with teenagers, you know, it's not even quote, not even close to the same, you know, <laughs> I mean, um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite fascinating. I, I do worry that there are a lot of people out there doing this kind of work without this kind of training. You know, I'm listening kind of quietly back here, like kind of absorbing it because, I have no framework from which to go on, you know, um, and um, yeah, I'm mean, worried that, uh, that there's a lot of people practicing without a very holistic understanding of all the different steps that should be taken, all the things that should be considered, and how important are each steps? What happens when somebody tries to engage in, you know, sex addiction therapy without a proper, you know, scope or practice? Uh, <laughs> what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I have my concerns too, and... They're, and they're mixed concerns because on the one hand, and speaking from, from my experience, I mean, the only way you get good at it is to do it. Yeah, um, fair, that's fair. But then attachment is a very strong variable that attachment can compensate, is, I would I would say, in yes. somewhat. Yep. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so much about addiction is, is healthy relationship. So, but, but again, as in the case of learning any new discipline, you mm-hmm. do it under supervision, you yes. do it having done reading, gone to trainings and things. You don't just say, Hey, this is interesting. I'm going to like try this. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I have concerns about people thinking, Oh, I know a little bit about this and, and, and I can go do this. Uh, although. Right. And that's not what these podcasts do, by the way. That's not, <laughs> yes. We're, yeah. Yeah. Just because you've listened to Smart Council doesn't make no. you an expert on anything, on anything. Yep. The, I, I would say some, some things to, some things I'd want to see in place though, are somebody 
who has a very holistic mindset, yeah. recognizing, you know, this person has like all of these different aspects there, their mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, communal, historical, and all of those are important. Um, you know, sex addiction therapy, it's, it's very holistic like that. It's very family systems oriented in that you end up working with the family and supporting the family and growth. Um, it's extremely trauma focused and trauma informed from what I can tell. I like that. And I don't know that that was always that way. I feel like I've heard that shifting over the last 10 years. I think so too. It comes up a little bit in the chemical dependency world. Sure. I'm thinking of a program like the the Seeking Safety program. It's a it's a dual diagnosis trauma trauma curriculum that looks at substance abuse and trauma together. And that's really great. That mm-hmm. sort of thing is a really necessary sort of product, necessary approach because Anywhere there's addiction, there's also trauma of some sort. And okay, maybe it's not quite that absolute, but pretty close. Right. Yeah. The, I, I, I would approximate that there's there's a strong overlap. But yeah, I'm sure there's there's other indications in genetics that can lead to more problematic neurological imbalances. For sure. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about sex addiction in particular too. So when we talk about well, we we're talking a lot about the partners. We we're talking a lot about the partner's trauma, often complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, it has a really, really strong relational root. And, yeah. um, you know, there's so much shame that goes into being the victim of betrayal trauma, and shame is always relational. It, would, would you say that um, these kinds of betrayal can cause complex PTSD? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, when you, so when you think about it, when you, uh, when you think about um, having psychological intimacy, um, mm-hmm. we could say, and I'm sort of paraphrasing something that was said in, in lecture, uh, we could say psychological intimacy is being able to let down your mental guards to feel safe. So being with somebody, being vulnerable, vulnerable with someone is part of the foundation for safety stability. Mm-hmm. It's what ideally happens in early attachment when you have your primary caregiver who's consistently supportively there for you, attuning to you, that creates secure attachment. If they're not there at all, you end up with avoidant attachment. If they're unpredictably there or too present, you get preoccupied attachment. Mm-hmm. If they themselves are the source of your fear, you get disorganized attachment, something like that. Um, so so psychological intimacy, that, that feeling of safety requires you know being able to experience trust and honesty and loyalty and commitment. And all of these are completely devastated by betrayal because that space is robbed. And this person who you had all these these things with violates that agreement Mm -hmm. and thus violates these core values, violates your your sense of safety. Mm -hmm. You know, take it a step further. And in order to sustain a betrayal or to sustain any infidelity or acting out, there's often a lot of lying that goes on. And so um, it was pointed out that we we intuit whether or not someone is being truthful or lying to us to, to a degree and not all to the same degree. But one of the main ways that we intuit is somebody being truthful with us is through eye contact. There, There's a way that through eye contact, we can kind of intuit if someone's lying to us or not. And so yeah. imagine- these, I think there's a lot of things like that that we don't even know about. For sure. And there's some research that demonstrates that even, you know, yawning might be, you know, an indication of, you know, kind of a little signal to try to see who's attached to you. You know, mirror neurons respond really strongly to yawning. That's why oh, somebody goodness. yawns, another person yawns. Yeah. Sociopaths don't yawn when you yawn, by the way. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so okay. So maybe- I'm saying there's probably hundreds of things like that. Right. And it's it's a complex system that we're not aware of. Yeah. 
but it was pointed out with eye contact in particular. So, so imagine the experience of you're an intimate partner of this person and you, you confront them on their acting out. They look you dead in the eye mm-hmm. and they lie to you consistently yeah. for however long. And then later you discover that. And the, the net result of that is you beginning to question your own intuition, your own gut sense, mm-hmm. essentially questioning yourself um, and lacking confidence in yourself. Uh, we talked a lot about gaslighting over the, the week and, mm. you know, gaslighting being that means by which an abuser kind of erodes your sanity, your self-concept, your your ability to trust your own self, your own intuition. Kind of, is it like a crazy making technique? It's like that, yeah. Okay. So, and it's reference to the movie where the guy is trying to swindle the woman and he, because he's gaslighting her, like literally like playing with the gaslights in the house and uh, oh. I, I've never seen the movie. Uh, okay. I should see the movie. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to go see the movie. I'll have a real strong foundational understanding of what it is. Right. <laughs> so. What movie is it? Do you know what it's called? I think it's called Gaslight. Oh, okay. okay. I, I heard. It shouldn't be too hard to find. Although, <laughs> if I'm mistaken, somebody please leave us a comment and correct me. So, mm-hmm. one of my other favorite conceptualizations of what sex addiction was is that sex addiction is an intrapersonal issue with interpersonal consequences because it's very much this thing that's going on inside me and it's leaking out and hurting everyone around me uh it's not the other person's fault but they're definitely getting hurt because of it yeah (laughs) so that so that was a lot of what we talked about a lot about disclosure a lot about trauma a lot about sounds like an intense week it was really intense and it brought up a lot for me personally reflecting on my own Mm. you know recovery story and you know you know my own my own process and um you know, especially, you know, myself going through a disclosure process, um, yeah. which is great practice for somebody doing a life confession. <laughs> right. So when I went to do a life confession joining the Orthodox Church, I was like, oh, I've done that. So it wasn't too big of a deal. <laughs> uh, but, um, but 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 it was hard because, you know, you become really aware of how you affect other people. Mm-hmm. And, and then you get caught in the tension of, okay, so I'm sitting between this person in recovery and their partner. And, oh my gosh, I see both their stories so clearly and I want to support them both and uh, I have loyalties and uh, and so the potential for a huge counter-transference is just super, super high and a lot to manage. But, mm-hmm. but you know, it's good. Uh, you know, all in a day's work, I suppose. Yep, yep. Well, it sounds like you had an intense weekend and you still have how many modules left? I have two left to go. Two more modules left. So okay. I, Do you know I, what's going to be covered in those next two modules? Um, I should. I, I got a little fire hose to so. say. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's always a great thing for therapists to, you know, demonstrate, you know, pursuing some of the most excellent trainings for the scope that they're practicing. Um, you know, I absolutely love to see, you know, and hear you talk about this training and look at your notes. I mean, he's standing here with a pile of notes that are scribbled on. It's it's like he's got as much writing on the page as, as is on the page. And I, I absolutely love seeing that, that this is something that you're kind of immensing, you know, uh, getting yourself immersed into. Um, and as therapists, I think that's what we really need to do with our craft. That I think, you know, speaking to grad students, we think that it ends when we finish grad school and it doesn't. It doesn't. I it think doesn't it gets end. better after grad it, school. It gets better. It, it's, it really just kind of starts. You know, it really starts. Unless unless you're really eager. I've, I've heard more and more grad students getting EMDR training or sex edition training before they graduate. You know, yeah, you don't get those CEUs, you know, but like you just can't start. You just can't not help yourself because, hey, man, you got an internship and these these clients are real. And, and you realize, Hey, I don't have enough skill and I'm just not expecting, you know, 
or I don't have any classes coming up that are going to cover this, you know, or, or we already covered this and it wasn't enough for this client. And, you know, I think that we all have to take up the mantle to say, you know, uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm the best or I'm going to make sure that I am doing my best, I should say, in the scope that I've chosen. Um, so I'm not just going to be ethical, but I'm also going to pursue excellence. And and I appreciate that you've done that. This program that you're pursuing, whether our readers or listeners notice it or not, it's it's an enormous program. <laughs> it's pretty big, yeah. Uh, and it, it's going to make it easy for me to send as many clients as I can to you in your area. And then that that that's really how you get clients too. If you're if you're starting off in private practice, you get clients because you specialize. You don't get clients from being as broad as you possibly can. For sure. The and, more specific your specialty, the, the the better you do. And it's a misconception that I, I'm shocked how many people have. You know, if, if you specialize, you will get some clients and that will get you started. If you try to take everybody, you will never get any clients. That's true. <laughs> and, you, and you'll be kind of overwhelmed too because yeah. you'll end up getting a lot of people who honestly you just don't like. And then you won't like Then you work. won't feel confident and you won't feel good about your work. Right. And you won't be as good of a therapist because you won't be as happy. Right, right, right. And, and when you do really good work because you focus on specific topics like addictions, like like sex therapy, you know, you'll do better work because you put a lot of resources into that and people will refer to you who think that will work well with you. Like, so it's funny, like, it's very different. I don't know if people notice this, but it's very different when you get a referral from like Google versus say someone you already worked with. It's strange how much less compatible people who come to you from Google are. No, I, I believe that. And <laughs> there might be something going on here. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think when, when people come to me from an individual, like, that, yeah, there's kind of this built in trust. There might be chemistry. some filter system of people who have already worked with you that know who would well work with you. And that might be happening from your colleagues. It might be happening from your colleagues who've graduated. I'm, I'm just saying that starting a private practice is hard. You're doing, you're doing awesome. I love what you're doing. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thank you. And I think it's good modeling for other students and other graduate, you know, other other clinicians out there. Excellent. It's good modeling. Well, I always did want to be a model. So, yeah. <laughs> oh wait, different kind of model. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, though, so a uh, note to to students thinking about your your programs. Mm-hmm. So. Not every program covers everything to the same skill level. Uh, there's lots of great programs out there. I yeah. would say, you know, as close to graduation as possible, uh, make sure you get a course specifically in trauma. Yeah. Make sure you get a course specifically in healthy relationships. I don't know what world people think that you're not going to run into trauma all the time. It's, it's and, true. And, and if you specialize in anything, you're always just going to get sprinkles of trauma. Oh, wait, it's actually huge anvils of trauma and you can't yeah. really avoid that and, and you can't specialize in anything without running into it so you it's might as true. well everybody just specialize in trauma that'll everybody specializes in trauma <laughs> that'll solve it <laughs> for sure which different than different than full-blown ptsd not yes. everybody has that yes but everybody be has, trauma informed right yeah super trauma informed you need that and you know when we're talking about quitting this addiction and adjusting that trauma we need to be able to replace it with healthy relationships so Take a healthy relationships course. Read books about healthy relationships. Find, learn how to teach healthy relationships. And that will be one of your best offerings to people. And I don't know if it's evident. Each week, Reese asks, you know, what we're reading. And we're reading something different each week. <laughs> we read a lot. Go do that. Yes, okay. <laughs> definitely do that. So, yeah. Take classes in trauma. Take classes in relationships. And take classes in addictions because most people are addicted to something. Yes. So. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, please do leave us comments, feedback, suggestions, uh, rebuttals. We like all of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also like reviews. Uh, You should review, rate and review our podcast. And we will be back next time with more Smart Counsel. Thank you.
We love your feedback, so let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at at Smart Council 601. And you can email your questions to smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore.